Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. Great to have you with us for another Jobs Friday in America. The U.S. reporting just minutes ago that 315,000 jobs were added to the U.S. economy last month, pretty much in line with expectations, and a sizable drop compared to the more than 500,000 positions that were created in July. The U.S. unemployment rate ticking higher as well to a reading of 3.7 percent, but still near the lowest levels in a half a century. Today's numbers also show a moderating pace of wage growth. That's an encouraging development for a Federal Reserve intent on fighting inflation. Here's the reaction on the financial markets. U.S. stocks on track for a higher open on hopes that the Fed may now be able to raise rates at a less aggressive pace later this month. European shares, they're higher as well after a mixed Asian handover. Asia under pressure as another massive COVID lockdown takes effect in China, this time in the city of Chengdu, affecting more than 20 million people. We're going to have more on that in just a minute. But first, let's get a closer look at today's jobs numbers. Rahel Solomon joins us now. So I saw stock futures pop. It looks like investors like this. Rahel, go through with us um, what's in this report. Yeah, I mean, this is a report, Allison, that was largely in line with what economists were expecting and uh, perhaps exactly what the Fed was hoping for, a sign of slow but steady cooling. So let's talk about what we saw in the report, where we are and where we were last month to put this in perspective. So uh, job growth, that came in at 315,000 compared to last month of 526. You can see uh, quite a slowdown there. But the slowdown that the Fed would argue we needed Unemployment rate ticking up to 3.7 percent, up from three and a half percent. But to put this in perspective, uh, we're still hovering at near 50 year lows. Wage growth, 5.2 percent. This is really important for the Fed. The Fed's been watching wages to see uh, the consequences of that, the implications of that for uh, inflation. And so wages actually increased three tenths of a percent uh, over the last month. That is a slowdown, however, from the half a percent that we saw the month prior. So that is a sign of good news. Of course, uh, the concern with wages is that higher wages start to trickle into higher prices that we consumers pay. And of course, uh, the Fed is dealing with 40 year high inflation. And so it is trying to cool higher prices. Also very important here, Allison, labor force participation, the percent of, percentage of Americans who are either actively looking for work or employed in the labor force, uh, that actually rose. That is something that Chairman Powell has talked a lot about. So that actually increased from 62.1% to 62.4%. That is a good, a good sign. That's a sign that Americans are coming off the sidelines and entering the workforce. Looking ahead, we have, of course, uh, CPI, the 
inflation report that comes in in a few weeks, and then we have the FOMC meeting in a few uh, few more weeks from that. And when we look, at Allison, at sort of where we saw the job growth uh, in this uh, report, we can show you here sector by sector exactly where we started to see some job growth. Uh, we saw retail trade adding 44,000, healthcare adding slightly more than that, 48, and professional business services adding 68,000. So look, this was a, a Goldilocks report, Allison, slow and steady, but not coming to a screeching halt, which is exactly what the Fed wants to see. Yeah, we will see how the Fed actually reacts to this at the end of the month when it meets. Rahel Solomon, thanks so much. To Ukraine now, and a day after inspectors from the U.N.'s nuclear watchdog visited the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, Russia denies it's storing heavy weapons there. Each side accuses the other of shelling the plant and the surrounding area. Meantime, the head of the IAEA, Rafael Grossi, says it's not going anywhere and will have a, quote, continued presence at the Russian-controlled site. Five inspectors do remain there and are scheduled to leave on Saturday. President Zelensky says the military occupation of the plant must end. Demilitarization of the territory of the station is the goal of Ukrainian and international efforts, and it is bad that we have not yet heard the appropriate messages from the IAEA, despite the fact that we talked about it with Mr. Grossi during our meeting in Kyiv. It was the key, the key security point of our agreements. It was outlined clearly, demilitarization and full control by our nuclear workers. Melissa Bell joins me now from Kiev. Melissa, Melissa, what are you hearing, uh, what it's been like inside the plant? Are you hearing any details? Well, what we are hearing is over the course of the last uh, 24 hours or so, ever since uh, Rafael Grossi and his team, including those who ended up staying, made their way into the plant, is more calm around it in terms of the shelling and the military activity, certainly than we've seen in the run-up to their arriving there. And I think that's part of the strategy, is that having these engineers inside the plant at least restores some sense of order and calm, and perhaps most importantly, Alison, an international national presence in that key strategic point on the front line. The shelling began at dawn around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the worst that the town of Enar Hodar has seen since it was occupied in March, according to its mayor. Briefed on the situation but undeterred, IAEA inspectors decided to head through the front line nonetheless. We are moving now. The 14-strong team seeing for itself as it traveled the artillery and mortar fire that led to the shutting down of one of the plant's last two functioning reactors. After an hours-long delay on its way, the IAEA inspectors arrived. A glimpse, at last, into a plant that's been occupied by Russian forces for months. It is obvious that, that the plant uh, and the physical integrity of the plant has been violated several times. And this is something that cannot continue to happen. Which is why, he said, five members of his team had stayed behind to ask more questions and to dig deeper. In a plant controlled by Russian forces but manned by workers who say that it's been almost impossible for them to do their jobs. We feel like hostages. We actually can't do our jobs. We can't carry phones, flash drives, memory cards. And God forbid, if you look at a soldier the wrong way, you could be thrown into the basement. 
the Ukrainian employees, I, I was with, with them throughout the, throughout the day. Uh, of course, they are in a, in a difficult situation, but they have an incredible degree of professionalism, and I see them calm and, 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 and moving on. The plan, he said, for the IAEA to establish a permanent presence at the plant and to make good on his word to its workers, that the UN nuclear watchdog is now there to stay. And that, Alison, matters for a number of different reasons. First of all, the immediate report that we expect in the wake of the departure of those initial expectors who stayed behind, they'll stay through the weekend, and they will provide a much more in-depth report about what they found and specifically what state this plant is now in. I remember that it went down to a single reactor only yesterday, a result of that uptick in shelling. One of the two last remaining reactors went down. Uh, there is the question of that detailed report, but then, of course, the question of what more we can learn. As you heard, President Zelensky, of course, wants this to go further, wants that lost territory to come back into Ukrainian hands. Uh, we've also been hearing this morning from inside what's happening inside the plant, the head of the Russian-backed regional administration who talked about uh, the trip, the tour of the inspectors, saying that they'd shown uh, the damage that they say had been done by Ukrainian shelling, to which the answer from the AE inspectors had come, that they were not there to assess the military situation. So over the next few days, neither side, no doubt, will be satisfied by this, but it is crucial because it is, again, impartial eyes in a site that, after all, is the largest European uh, nuclear plant, and, of course, given all that's happened around it, uh, at such risk. And so if only their presence quietens things for a time, that will be a huge step in the right direction, Alison. All right, Melissa Bell, thanks very much. In the last few minutes, G7 finance ministers have confirmed plans for a price cap on Russian oil. They say the cap will reduce Russia's oil revenue and limit the Kremlin's ability to fund its operations in Ukraine. Even before the announcement came, Russia was pushing back. Fred Pleiken has the reaction from Moscow. Fred. Mm. Hi there, Allison. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. First of all, this just came pretty much fresh off the printing presses from the G7. And they're obviously saying that this move that they're undertaking right now, which no doubt is a very big one, is obviously in reaction to the war in Ukraine. And what essentially they want to do is they want to curb Russia's ability to fund that invasion that is ongoing. And I've been sort of flying through the statement from the G7 countries. I think the sort of key uh, point is right here. To deliver on this commitment, they say, uh, today we confirm our joint political intention to finalize and implement a comp comprehensive prohibition of services which enable maritime transportation of Russian origin crude and petroleum products globally. The provision of such services would only be allowed if the oil and petroleum products are purchased at or below a price called the price cap. So that's the price cap that they want to put in place. And it's quite interesting. If you read further through the statements, they want to get other countries on board as well. And that's where the Russians come in because they've already been reacting uh, viciously to this before this statement even came out. In fact, the spokesman for the Kremlin said that this would lead to a massive disruption uh, of international oil markets, of petroleum markets uh, as well. He also said, and this was also backed by Russia's deputy prime minister, that countries that implement such a price cap would not receive any more oil or petroleum products from the Russians. The Russians are saying, look, we'll just find other buyers. It's going to be very interesting to see how many countries are actually going to go along with this, because, of course, you have the 
the two big elephants in the room, India and China, that have been buying a lot of Russian petroleum products and oil as well. And the Russians say, look, right now there's more potential buyers out there um, than ever before. So the Russians are saying they would take these countermeasures. Whoever signs on to this price cap is not going to be getting any uh, petroleum products or oil from the Russians uh, anymore. The main thing that the Russians have been saying, Allison, um, and this is something that Vladimir Putin has said himself, is that they believe Russia is simply too big to isolate, especially at a time when so many countries are looking for ways to get energy. And obviously, Russia already apparently selling some of its oil products at a discounted rate to countries like China and India as well, Allison. Yeah, this will certainly be interesting to see how it plays out in the coming weeks and months. Fred Pleiken, thanks so much. Mm-hmm. In a massive new lockdown, more than 20 million people in the Chinese city of Chengdu are being confined to their homes as a new spate of COVID infections is reported. 150 new cases were recorded on Thursday. As Christy Liu Stout reports, this has major ramifications for individuals and businesses. 21 million people are confined to their homes in Chengdu in China's largest citywide lockdown since Shanghai's ended in June. And the apparent trigger, well, on Wednesday, Chengdu reported 156 local cases of COVID-19. On Friday, it reported 150 new local cases of the virus. Now, the city has launched mass testing for all 21 million residents. They've been asked to stay at home until at least Sunday, except for going out to take the test. Only one person in each household with a negative COVID test result can get groceries once a day. All businesses are closed except essential services like supermarkets, hospitals and pharmacies. And factory production has been affected. In fact, Volvo Cars has a factory in Chengdu and is suspending production. And it's not just Chengdu. Other major Chinese cities have stepped up COVID restrictions this week. In the high-tech hub of Shenzhen, authorities have shut down the world's largest electronics market. And in the northern port city of Dalian, a lockdown is in effect for about 3 million residents. Despite the cost, China is still holding fast to its zero COVID policy. Local authorities across China have been under huge pressure to prevent COVID-19 outbreaks before the 20th Communist Party Congress set to start on October the 16th. This is when President Xi Jinping is expected to secure an unprecedented third term as leader. Some Chinese hope that the country's zero COVID restrictions could be relaxed after the Congress, but... Beijing has not offered any timeline on a possible shift in policy. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. Argentina's vice president has survived an apparent assassination attempt outside her home. Authorities say a man pointed a gun at Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner and pulled the trigger. But the weapon failed to go off, as you can see in this video. The the vice president escaped unharmed, and the the suspected gunman was detained. Stefano Posobon is following this story and joins us now. It is incredible when you look at that video, Stefano, just how close that suspect got. Yes, Alison, and in fact, uh, the supporters of uh, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, or just Cristina, as uh, she is almost ubiquitously known in, in the region, are already talking of uh, a miracle uh, in in the way she escaped this apparent uh, assassination attempt. Uh, 
Um, closer to what is happening today, the Argentinian cabinet is in meeting right now to come up with uh, a unified response uh, against the attack that yesterday Alberto Fernandez, the president of the nation, in a nationwide address uh, called uh, the most grave, the most serious attack we have faced uh, since the restoration of uh, democracy in Argentina. Today is a national holiday that uh, was declared by Fernandez as a way to rally together and to unify the country. And this is happening in a moment of increased political tension in, uh, in the country. Just last week, on August 23rd, a prosecutor, a federal prosecutor, requested a 12-year in jail sentence for Christina, who faces charges, uh, corruption charges, dating back to when she was the president of Argentina between 2007 and 2015. Her supporters have said that these uh, uh, investigation is politically motivated and that is why we've seen over the last week um, rallies and sit-ins by her supporters outside her house. It was in one of such rallies that this accident took place. And I think it's also striking uh, to show, um, Alison, how the choice of words that Fernandez used yesterday to condemn this attack uh, mirrored the choice of words that President Joe Biden said just a few hours earlier in his Philadelphia address, saying that democracy was attacked, that the state had to come together and call in on every single man or woman in Argentina to reject this attack with the most firm resolution. Alison. All right, Stefano Pozoban, thanks so much. The deposed former leader of Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi, has been sentenced to three years of hard labor in Myanmar. The Nobel Peace Prize winner was found guilty of electoral fraud by a court in the military-run country. It means the 77-year-old now faces 20 years in jail. And in a scathing speech, Joe Biden said Donald Trump and his extremist supporters are a threat to the very soul of the United States. The U.S. president blasted their election conspiracies, assault on civil rights, and calls for political violence. Mr. Biden, Mr. Biden's fiery speech comes with November's midterm elections now, just weeks away. Coming up on First Move, a changing jobs landscape and changes in the way employers find recruits. ZipRecruiter is here to tell us more. Plus... Fly me to the moon, but not today. NASA engineers are trying to get th that Artemis rocket off the launch pad. We'll get the views of a former astronaut. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stocks remain on track for a solidly higher open after the release of a Fed-friendly U.S. jobs report. The U.S. reporting within the past hour that 315,000 jobs were added to the U.S. economy last month. That's a solid number, but the slowest pace of gains in about a year and a half. The U.S. unemployment rate ticking higher as well, and wage gains, they moderated a bit. 
Today's data is encouraging news for the Federal Reserve as it attempts to slow the economy and the pace of inflation. It could give the Fed some room here to raise rates at a less aggressive half a percent pace later this month. The deciding factor for central bankers will likely be the next read on U.S. inflation that comes out just before the next FOMC policy meeting, which happens on September 21st and 22nd. Joining me now is Diane Swank. She's the chief economist at KPMG. Great to see you. Good to see you. Let's talk about first your reaction to this report. 315,000 jobs added, unemployment going up to 3.7 percent. Well, the most important issue about the report were sort of two things. One is we saw leisure and hospitality hiring slow quite a bit. Actually, a lot of workers were laid off in the leisure and hospitality sector as the ranks of those on vacation plummeted earlier than usual start to the school year, cut the summer vacation season off sooner. And that meant not as many leisure and hospitality workers being hired as we had seen. And in fact, more layoffs, uh, sort of seasonal layoffs than we usually see. Also important in this report was the increase in the participation rate. We saw a big increase in the number of people looking for work. That's good. We want people out looking for work. It was driven mostly by Hispanics, women, um, as their kids went back to school, they were able to start looking for a job. We also saw, for some reason, a very odd sort of seasonal quirk in teens' participation rate. I wouldn't put a lot of weight on that, given the timing of the school year and some strange things going on there. But some of the participation rate came from that. Another issue we saw was the ranks of those out sick during the month. This is what's causing all those headaches and staffing shortages out there. In addition to how hard it is to find workers right now, those continue to rise as we deal with you know, the variants of the Omicron variant. They're running over 60% what they were in any month pre-pandemic. And those are the kind of costs that continue to put upward pressure on inflation and eat away at wage gains even as wages start to hit a plateau. So even though this report is certainly more welcome news to the Fed that the economy may be finally starting to begin to slow, it's still nowhere near the kind of slowdown that is necessary to derail what it worries about as an underlying inflation in the U.S. economy. So what I'm getting from you, it's still inflationary, this report. And so where do you think that leaves the Fed? I mean, is this this is do you see this as a Goldilocks report in the Fed's eyes or do you see this as, um, you know, the Fed is going to continue its aggressive stance in raising rates? Well, it has made clear, Jay Powell made clear at the Jackson Hole, Wyoming meetings that he was going to stand pat and continue to be aggressive. Half percent is still aggressive in terms of rate hikes. I think they're going to hit a terminal rate of four percent. But what's interesting is how the Fed sees its role in sort of it's easy to get from as energy prices come off and things like that to get from a 6% core rate of inflation to 4%. It's much harder to get that last yard from 4 to 2%, which is what a level that you know, we don't notice. And that's what they really want to get to. What they think they're going to have to do is raise rates to 4% and hold them there for the bulk of 2023 and see much larger increases in the unemployment rate. That's the hard part. And that was the really difficult part of Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell's message at Jackson Hole. And I don't think this report changes that message at all, given we're still so out of whack. If job openings held at the July levels, 
even with the higher number of people seeking jobs in the month of August, we'd still be at 1.9 job openings per worker when the Fed is looking for it to be more balanced at one to one. Yeah, so so we should expect more pain before we see the Fed back off. So it makes me wonder, why are we seeing stock futures jump you know, after this report came out? You know, I think there's really a lot of anticipation. There's no muscle memory of what inflation really means in financial markets. Unfortunately, I was well, I was in school during the um, early 1980s, but I also remember the 70s growing up in Detroit and what stagflation was like. And I think we've lost a muscle memory over the last 40 years with the decelerating inflation, globalization, allowing, you know, basically firms to globalize, pick labor market when their own labor market was tight. They could go to cheaper labor elsewhere. We could get cheaper goods from elsewhere. That low-hanging fruit of globalization has been plucked when it comes to inflation. For workers, the tides have turned. And I think this environment that's more inflation-prone and has the risk of having more legs to it on inflation, it's still not in the psyche of financial markets. And I think that, you know, that they still expect the Fed to just do a quick turnaround and be able to start cutting rates quickly when what the Fed is looking to do is create what's hopefully a mild recession to slowly grind inflation out of the economy rather than something that's deep and devastating, but still a recession nonetheless. Yeah, so you're not thinking that the Fed is going to uh, create a soft landing here uh, for the economy. You know, there were some indications, though, that inflation had had sort of stalled, not stalled out, but sort of ha- has started to peak. Um, many analysts saying that you're not feeling the same. I actually, of course, we've seen inflation start to peak and we've also see, we'll see another improvement in inflation, lower and cooler inflation, just given what's happened at prices of the gas pump as we, from the August figures as we go into that September Fed meeting. What the Federal Reserve is worried about is that the service sector, which is the most dependent on labor costs, has seen labor costs soar in the second quarter of this year. The data we just got yesterday shows that unit labor costs surged at a 10.2 percent rate. That's the fastest pace of labor costs since 1982. And that is something that worries the Fed because that was a much more inflationary period. And we know what a large component labor costs are of the service sector. So as we pivot away from goods that are now thankfully some of them falling in price. Used cars are finally depreciating again as depreciating assets as they are instead of going up in price above sticker prices. That's good news. The problem is a used car doesn't put food on your table. Okay. Our thanks to Diane Swank, the chief economist at KPMG. Thanks for your analysis. Still to come, America's labor market has seen a drastic shift after the pandemic. I'll be talking with the CEO of ZipRecruiter about what job seekers are looking for. That's after the break. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stocks are up and running for the final trading session of the week. And we've got solid gains for all of the major averages after the latest U.S. jobs report showed employment gains moderating last month. The U.S. adding some 315,000 jobs in August. That's the slowest pace in over a year. Christine Romans joins us now for more a great analysis on this. Christine, great to see you. I want you to hi. I want you to put on your Federal Reserve hat for a moment, if you wouldn't, and look through that lens and tell me what your thoughts are about the August jobs report. Okay, my Federal Reserve hat. This is my one gesture. <laughs> 
Nicely done. Not too hot, right? Maybe it shows maybe it shows that some of that front-loaded medicine from the Fed is starting to cool down the temperature of the patient. And that is, of course, a red-hot an inferno, as one of our headlines yesterday said it's for CNN Business about what was happening in the job market. Um, 315,000 jobs added. That's a lot. In normal times, I mean, we would, there'd be banner headlines for a surging job market, but it's down from last month. And if you look at jobs added over the past year, it's clearly a trend that is emerging of a still tight, still strong labor market, but slowing the pace of those jobs added. And I think that's exactly what policymakers want to see. This is a little hotter than expectations, and I wouldn't worry too much about that. Economists have had a very hard time forecasting what's going on in the labor market because there are just so many distortions there. So that bar chart of jobs added, I think, really tells the picture. You've got about um, three and a half million jobs added this year. That is a lot. 5.8 million jobs added over the past year. Wow, that is a lot. But that's all coming back after this, this big, huge COVID catastrophe that has really kind of broken all the charts. So the trends here, I think, are really important. The unemployment rate down to 3.7 percent. That's up just a little bit. Historically, still pretty low. But I think that shows you that people are coming into the labor market, labor force participation rate increasing, something you want to see. So all of these things taken together, a still strong labor market, but not so hot that the Fed has to be worried about being super behind the curve. But you still think that um, the Fed will stay the course with aggressive rate hikes? You know, we're going to hear from the Fed chief this week. We're going to hear from another Fed governor this week. And I think that's what we're going to be keyed into. Do they suggest that this one report is a little bit of relief? I'm not sure that they take one report. I think they are, you know, of that economic and Wall Street mind that the trend is your friend. You want to see this really an established pattern where uh, the, the, the job gains are moderating a bit. I mean, one economist at Capital Economics was saying this is normalizing. You know, this is still a really strong labor market, but it's normalizing. And that's exactly what you want to see. We have one more CPI report, by the way, before the Fed's next meeting. I think that'll be critical to see if, if, if there are signs that inflation is normalizing and moderating as well. So I'm, I, I really think I take Fed Chief Pallet's word that they're data dependent. They're watching every little piece of, of economic news and trying to be flexible and nimble. But um, they are going to be aggressive to fight this problem of inflation, and it could cause pain for American households. Yeah, and they've got quite a task at hand. Christine Romans, thanks so yeah. much. You're welcome. Businesses aren't throwing away their help-wanted signs just yet. Data earlier this week showed there were around 11.2 million vacancies in July, a surprise uptick from June. Data also showed there were almost twice as many jobs available as there were job seekers. ZipRecruiter is an online marketplace that connects job seekers to employers across all types of industries. But it's economists who say they have seen a slowdown in the number of jobs getting posted to the site. Joining me now is Ian Siegel. He's the CEO and co-founder of ZipRecruiter and author of Get Hired Now. Ian, mm-hmm. thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. So it does feel like the labor market is undergoing a transformation. What are the biggest trends you're seeing in the jobs market right now in the U.S.? Well, I would call what we're seeing right now a very slow, very steady return to normal. And that's great news because that's exactly what the Fed has been looking for as it contemplates continuing to raise interest rates, which have all sorts of ramifications on the labor market. 
We have seen employers struggle for the past year and a half to staff back up post-COVID. And finally, we've seen unemployment start to climb modestly. We're still well under 4% unemployment. This is a very healthy labor market. And it's actually great news because there's been so many gloom and doom headlines that I think it's very possible that consumer confidence is going to be impacted. Certainly, job seekers' confidence has been impacted. We maintain an index where we measure their sentiment. And we've seen multi-month declines in their confidence in their ability to both get a job as well as to negotiate for better salaries. And honestly, that is also good news because the market had tilted so much in favor of job seekers that employers were growing desperate. And now we're seeing a little bit of balance restored. Yeah. And remote and hybrid work, that figures prominently uh, in this sort of new transformation of, of jobs and careers. I'm curious if you think remote and hybrid work is here to stay. And are the companies that you're talking with, are they in favor of this? I mean, it's one of the great inexorable influences of capitalism, which is most companies consider their talent one of their key assets. And over 60% of job seekers who work in a job that could be done either hybrid or remote are now insisting on that style of work. We have had a record number of quits over the last really 15 months where you're seeing almost double the number of people quitting as what were happening in a pre-COVID period. And why are they quitting? They're looking for work that better fits their lifestyle. Over 40% of people who have changed jobs in the last six months did so for increased flexibility. Definitely think that uh, remote work is here to stay and it's going to be a part of our future. Yeah, but there are companies pushing back, uh, saying, get back to the office five days a week. You know, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, uh, Tesla, they're saying come back for five days a week or leave. Who has the leverage here in reality? Um, is it the employer or the employee? And is, is, is this sort of edict to come back five days a week, is that an effective strategy, do you think? I have talked to the senior executives of multiple large enterprises that have attempted to compel their employees to return to work. And I cannot name a single instance of where they've had success getting those employees to come back. You are seeing pushback across every company in every industry where remote work can be done. You're literally seeing things like petitions being signed by employees and delivered to management to insist upon the fact that they will not accept that I do not believe that any company has the leverage to compel this. And it will, in particular, when it becomes a recruiting disadvantage, which it has already proven to be, I think most companies are going to capitulate and the future of work is already here. And the new reality is that remote work is here to stay. Talk us through how the interview process and how uh, the recruiting process is changing. I heard that it's video resumes that are key in finding a job now. Uh, Well, I don't. I think video interviews have become the new norm, as has uh, what I would call a more human and a faster vetting process. Companies that are having success recruiting right now are really manifesting uh, two traits. So the first trait is the big, uh, the big winners from a recruiting standpoint have adopted a proactive recruiting strategy. And what that means is the companies are effectively going first. They're reaching out to potential candidates Rather than waiting for those candidates to apply, 38% of those that have been hired in the last six months were approached directly by either a hiring manager or by a recruiter. Contrast that with two years ago pre-COVID, it was 19%. Contrast that to 10 years ago, it was less than 5%. So the new reality is companies are going out and 
uh, talking to talent as opposed to waiting for talent to find them. And then the other thing that they're doing is they're going very quickly. So once they get a candidate engaged, the winners are able to move them through a process with uh, tremendous speed because it is so difficult to get the attention of talent and it has been so competitive for talent that it is through an earnest and persistent demonstration of enthusiasm that companies are actually bringing in talent. The teacher shortage here in the U.S. is significant. I know that ZipRecruiter has created a new online job portal um, and and you worked with uh, President Joe Biden on this. Why was this important to do? Well, the government reached out to us and asked us if we would participate in a public-private partnership to try and address the fact that public schools in America are down 360,000 staff from where they were pre-COVID. And that's not just teachers. It's also bus drivers and custodial staff and security and substitute teachers. And it's a really dire situation. There are schools that can't get their kids into classrooms. There are schools that have no teachers to put into those classrooms. So we, of course, agreed that we would assist the government in trying to fill those open roles. We had 90,000 teachers looking for work on ZipRecruiter last month. So really, this isn't a problem of supply necessarily. This is a problem of both the types of jobs being offered and where those jobs are needed most. We launched a uh, new website called schooljobsnearme.org just to make sure that all of those teaching professionals and all of that school support staff could see all the open jobs at public schools across America in one easy-to-review place. And this is actually important because a lot of teachers were limiting the scope of their search to really narrow areas, and they didn't realize there were so many opportunities in adjacent communities that they were easily able to commute to. Sounds so helpful and organized. Ian Siegel, CEO and co-founder of ZipRecruiter and author of Get Hired Now. Great conversation. Thanks for your time today. Pleasure to be here. Coming up after the break, languishing on the launch pad, NASA scrubs the Artemis 1 liftoff again. We'll get the latest from Mission Control next. NASA is gearing up to launch its Artemis 1 moon mission on Saturday, but there's still no guarantee it will happen. Monday's launch was scrubbed because of engine issues. A planned launch for Friday was canceled because of the weather. If all goes well, Artemis's Orion spacecraft will travel more than one million miles. The six-week mission will take it around the moon and back. There won't be any astronauts on board, but the spacecraft will deploy 10 small satellites called CubeSats, which will carry out scientific tasks of their own. Former astronaut Leroy Chow joins us now. He's logged over 229 days in space and 36 hours of spacewalks. Welcome to the show and thanks for your time today. Oh, great to be with you. I want to talk about this mission because, you know, it was what, it was 53 years ago that we went to the moon. We've been there. So many are wondering why a half century later, is it important to do this again, but for so much money? I understand NASA is spending about $100 billion in total to get there. Well, it certainly is justified to ask the question, why is it costing so much money? Uh, you know, part of it is that NASA and the contractors, like other large organizations, over time, as they get larger, they get less efficient, they get more, more, uh, you know, kind of bureaucratic. And so unfortunately, you are seeing prices that are a lot higher than they were before, even after adjusting for inflation. 
And so it's taken us a long time to get here in one iteration or another. Uh, the program was started in 2004, 2005. This particular rocket has been being in development since 2010. And so, yes, the criticisms certainly are justified. Why are we going back to the moon? We haven't been back to the moon in nearly 50 years. 1972 with Apollo 17 is the last time humans walked on the moon. So if we're serious about trying to go to Mars, uh, it makes sense to go back to the moon first because we have to relearn how to do things, how to land on the moon. It's also a great place to test and develop things like habitats, rovers, spacesuits, train astronauts there. And the reason it's a good place to do that, it's a realistic environment uh, for Mars, and it's only three or four days away from Earth. So if you have a problem, you get your get your astronauts home quickly, whereas Mars, uh, even one way at closest, closest approach is six months each way. So that's primarily why we want to go back to the moon uh, before we go on to Mars. I want to talk a bit about the bureaucracy that you mentioned, because, you know, we see private space companies, you know, like SpaceX, for example. Um, they're part of the landscape of space exploration now, and they're, and they're doing it cheaper and faster. And, of course, critics are saying, well, why can't NASA go ahead and do the same? I'm wondering what your thoughts are, um, you know, for, let's say, a program that to get Artemis 1 to the moon was supposed to take five years, and critics say it now is taking nearly 12 why is it that NASA isn't more efficient? Why doesn't um, maybe Congress get in there and, and kind of pick apart the bureaucracy? Well, you're absolutely right. Organizations like SpaceX have a relatively flat management structure, and so they're nimble, they're innovative. You know, we have, we've seen that, uh, uh, you know, from the inception of NASA in 1958 to the actual first moon landing with humans was just under 11 years. It's pretty incredible when you think about in just under 11 years, uh, NASA created the organization. It created uh, rockets, trained astronauts, created launch pads, did, you know, did all these things, learned how to do all these things, spacesuits and, and landed humans on the moon in such a short period of time. So, of course, you know, we can talk about the Byzantine uh, Empire and how it collapsed under its own weight. And it seems like humans, when we start getting uh, larger and larger organizations, that seems to be the way most of them go. And NASA and the contractors are not the only large organizations to have that problem. You can point to the federal government. You can point to any most large corporations and say, gee, you know, you used to do things so quickly and so nimbly. So, yes, we are excited about SpaceX and companies like SpaceX. They've done so much with so little in such a short period of time. In fact, people who used to work at NASA that I know in the early Apollo days say SpaceX feels like NASA did uh, way back then. Hmm. If Mars is the goal here, which I'm assuming it is at this point, when will, um, whether it's private space companies or NASA, when will we go to explore Mars? I mean, how far off? How many years are we talking about? Sure. Well, Elon Musk said he started SpaceX because he specifically wants to go to Mars. In fact, he wants to build colonies on Mars. He himself wants to go live on Mars. So he's always been really optimistic about when things are going to happen, whether it's rockets or electric cars, but he gets it done. And so he thinks that he can get to Mars in, say, the next five-ish years, I would say maybe 10-ish years. 
uh, just as my guess. But uh, ideally, uh, SpaceX would do it in, can, in collaboration with NASA. They're working with NASA already on supplying the International Space Station and bringing astronauts to and from the International Space Station. So it would make sense to expand that collaboration to include Mars to take advantage of the innovation and nimbleness of the commercial space companies, the newer ones, uh, and leverage off of the experience, the incredible amount of experience and operational know-how uh, from NASA. Would you want to ever suit up again and if there was a launch to Mars and you were there for it, was that something you'd want to do? You know what? Uh, I, yeah, I would love to go explore Mars, but I don't want to live there. <laughs> I want to come back. <laughs> I like living here on the Earth. <laughs> All right. Uh, Leroy Chow, um, thanks so much uh, for uh, joining us today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Allison. Next, one streamer to rule them all. At least that's what Amazon is banking on. Find out why next. As Beyonce once said, if you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. Well, it seems like Amazon may have taken notice. The Prime Video service is betting big on its new Lord of the Rings series, uh, certainly. Um, how big? Uh, jaw-dropping $465 million, and that's just the first season. It's being called the most expensive show of all time, and now we'll finally see if it lives up to the price tag as the show drops today. Paula Monica is live from Middle Earth, or at least somewhere in the middle of New York, right? Hi, Paul. <laughs> Indeed, yes. So yes, Amazon- not, in, not in Middle Earth, exactly, but yes. Uh, Somewhere near there. Um, Amazon Prime Video, you know, it, it's far from one of the biggest streamers at this point. And I think what the service needs, or at least I'm feeling that it needs, are new eyeballs. So is Lord of the Rings helping Amazon to accomplish that? Yeah, that's what remains to be seen, Allison. I think you're right. Clearly, uh, Prime uh, Video has a couple of shows that have broken through the pop culture zeitgeist, things like The Boys, uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but they really haven't done anything to the extent of, say, Netflix with Stranger Things and Bridgerton that everyone's talking about, or Squid Game, Disney Plus with The Mandalorian and some of their Marvel shows. I think Amazon really wants a show that is not maybe just a prestige play, but a true crowd pleaser that can bring in people that maybe aren't prime subscribers already. And keep in mind, Allison, that's what it's all about with Amazon is getting you hooked on that prime monthly or annual subscription service so that you can basically say, yeah, you know what? I want to get things delivered from Whole Foods and books delivered from Amazon for those of us still reading paper books and, and then watch video as well. And it's all part of this prime package that Amazon is trying to get more people to subscribe to. And I'm they've been pretty successful. Oh. I just I was so excited. I cut you off. I'm so excited you're actually reading paper books. I'm all for that. I do want to ask you about the arrival of the NFL's uh, Thursday night football on Prime Video. How is this going to elevate Amazon's streaming? Yeah, it's a great, great observation, Allison. Football, as we know, the NFL, that has been one part of the media traditional TV landscape that still brings in 
tens of millions of viewers every week, you know, over a hundred million usually for the Super Bowl at the uh, you know end of the year. So the NFL is big bucks for major media companies, and that is also now blending into the streaming services as well. So I think Amazon hopes to have yet another reason to get people to subscribe to Prime because there are a lot of people that want to watch the NFL. They're fans of the teams. They may have fantasy sports teams that they're looking for there. And obviously legal gambling now in many states across the nation. So I think all those factors combined mean that the NFL will remain a ratings juggernaut for the foreseeable future. And Amazon gets that. All right, Paula Monica, thanks for all that great analysis. Thank you. And that's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Kosick. Thanks for watching. Connect the World is next. I'll see you soon. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.